0: This is the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bonebeat Orthopedic Podcast channel. This series features important conversations on health policy issues, as well as advocacy efforts to advance access and quality to musculoskeletal healthcare. Be sure to tune in on the third Tuesday of every month for our regular program, made possible in part by the support of the Pfizer Lilly Alliance. I'm your host, Doug Lundy, Chair of the AAOS Advocacy Council. I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Dr. Patricia Ketchy in this in-person interview here at our office in Atlanta to discuss the economics and some of the impact that's associated with the impending Medicare cuts that are coming up to face not only the House of Orthopedic Surgery, but medicine in general. It's going to give us more of a global impression and view of what these cuts really mean in terms of healthcare dynamics and healthcare economics. So let me introduce Dr. Patricia Ketchy. She is an associate professor and MBA slash MHA program director in the Institute of Health Administration at the Robinson College of Business and continues to serve as a fellow with the Georgia Health Policy Center, both located at Georgia State University. She taught graduate courses in health policy and ethics, healthcare financial management, and care management systems. And she is a health sciences researcher with a particular interest in policy and financing in the administration of public and private insurance programs. So we have clearly somebody who is an expert in these fields to discuss with us. So welcome, Dr. Ketchy, to the AOS Advocacy Podcast. My pleasure. With the impending Medicare cuts that are coming down the pike, orthopedic surgeons have a lot of consternation and issues with that. So to briefly summarize, we have the 3.75% cut that was initiated last year, but may not be refunded like it was funded last year. So we may be facing the cut that we were going to face last year that got repealed. Plus, we've got two sequestration cuts, one the 4% percent paygo cut, and then the other 2% sequester cut. So obviously, the House of Medicine is pretty flared up, but you see this from a much more global view.
1: Right. So the federal government has a great deal of worry about the totality of Medicare spending. And the big issue is Medicare continuing to eat up an ever-increasing share of the federal budget. So in their wisdom and inability to implement refined policies, the federal government took the blunt tool of sequestration that just says, when costs grow, we cut everything across the board. So that's the nature of the beast. But the underlying problem of Medicare costs growing faster than inflation and eating up more and more of the federal budget is really the driver.
0: I like how you said the blunt tool, because it really does do it. It just goes right across the whole spectrum, doesn't it?
1: Right, right. In this case, that tool is going to hit different specialties differently, even though it's a single cut to the relative value unit reimbursement rate, because there have been some other changes made. The Medicare has added some new codes and is increasing compensation for services like telehealth And they're growing the reimbursement rates for E&M, for evaluation and management codes. So that means the primary care specialties are going to experience these cuts at a much different level than the procedural specialties, because they'll get offsetting gains through some of those other changes.
0: So these cuts more or less incentivize the primary care specialties, the E&M codes. Did they take any hit at all?
1: They've gotten rid of one E&M code, but they've changed the work value of the most commonly used E&M code. So those will be reimbursed at a higher level. It'll, of course, depend on the type of primary care and the type of practice, whether they'll have... A lower level of reimbursement, but not as significantly as the 10% cut, or whether in some cases they might actually see slightly higher levels of reimbursement. But certainly they're not going to be impacted by this global 10% cut rate the way procedure oriented specialties will be.
0: I want to be sensitive to the fact that some of our audience may not be completely versed in healthcare economics. Can you? briefly go over the idea of budget neutrality when it comes to Medicare so that people can understand the whole concept of the pie and how it can only be cut so many ways.
1: Right. If you look at the data, you can see that Medicare costs have taken ever-increasing share of the federal budget. And because of population change, demographics, baby boomers, and all of that, that projection continues. Budget neutrality requirements are efforts to use price changes to compensate for growth in utilization, a lot of which is tied to this growing enrollment and growing baby boomer population that's entering Medicare.
0: Is the Medicare budget supposed to increase as more people enter into it, or it's too bad, this is the amount of money, we don't care how many is in it, y'all figure it out?
1: The Medicare budget will grow. And it must grow because this is a statutorily designed program. They can't just say you don't get any more money. But the growth in expenditures is supposed to be tied to growth in federal revenues and growth in the economy. That's what they tried to achieve with the sequestration. And then some of the cuts that were imposed for the American Rescue Plan was to try and constrain that growth to tie it to federal revenues. Even that's going to be very difficult to achieve.
0: So the sequestration, that covers much more than Medicare Part B. What all does that hit?
1: I mean, it hits defense spending and In other areas, right, the sequestration was the most blunt tool that just says, we're going to just chop off our own foot every time. Rather than establish annual priorities, we're going to just cut everything whenever we exceed our spending targets.
0: We're going to hit everybody equally. Everybody's going to feel the pain and there's not any favorite children that are going to escape it. Got it. But that's different, of course, in the 3.75% cut, which is a conversion factor.
1: Well, the 3.75%, I think, was a one-year supplemental payment that was passed because of COVID and because of some of the strains on the system in 2020 with a sunset. Of December 31st, 2021. And then the 4% cut, I think, is part of the American Rescue Plan, pay as you go. And so you're adding codes for telehealth, you're spending more on e then you have to cut the rate to make it budget neutral. So there's three pieces of that pie, but all together, 10% is huge.
0: Let me ask about the elephant in the room. As an orthopedic surgeon, the House of Medicine, we see things through our lens and how things affect us directly, you have a much more unique perspective where, as an economist, you see how healthcare financing and economics affects the entire country. So, number one, is the federal government just picking on us because we are easy target and they just say, hey, look, we took the money from the doctors and that's an easy hit, even though it's a mild rounding error in the balance sheet. Or, number two, are these cuts actually material to the nation's economy, and they will actually make a significant difference.
1: Whether they'll make a difference to the economy overall is certainly a big question, and I'm not sure I'm qualified at that grand of a level. But I do think it's important to say that really, for as long as I've been studying this field, physician cuts have been targeted and then rolled back. And I'm sure many of your listeners remember the sustainable growth rate, and every year there was a battle to stop that cut. Then along came the changes in the MIPS program, which was supposed to replace the sustainable growth rate and make the cuts more targeted and more measured by value. But overall, there's been a longstanding belief that when we compare our country's spending with international, with other countries, and with our own outcomes that we spend far more on healthcare than any other country, that spending doesn't achieve better outcomes. In fact, our outcomes lag in many of the things we measure and that one of the big drivers of those outcomes are the input prices with physicians being one of the input prices into the spending. And so physicians in the US earn more than physicians in many other developed countries. And so those kinds of data suggest to policymakers that maybe that's a place to think about where we can try and rein in this spending, which is going to consume almost 20% of our GDP by the end of the next decade.
0: You come from a very interesting perspective, because not only are you a PhD economist, but you're also married to an anesthesiologist.
1: I am. My husband used to joke that I sit on a limb and saw it off.
0: (laughs) (laughs) To a large extent, you have obviously a conflict because your husband does what we do in terms of practicing medicine. So he will be affected by this as well. So you see from both sides of the equation, much more so than many other people do. And you brought so much out in that last narrative that I really want to unpack some. So I was going to bring up the sustainable growth rate to our younger listeners That was before MACRA. Then the passage of MACRA was supposed to get rid of the SGR stress every year when we go up to D.C. and advocate before Congress, please pass some type of funding to prevent the SGR cliff. And now we're back in it again.
1: Exactly.
0: Is what we're seeing just the same old thing all the way back at the SGR that the government realizes that we have the success to spend in healthcare dollar they tried to fix it through SGR, that didn't work. They're trying to fix it through MacRA and it's not working. We've got to go to sequestration. Is that what we're saying?
1: To some extent, yes. There are a lot of interrelated problems. And of course, the total spend in Medicare Part B or in the health system is never just about prices. It's about price and about quantity. And about the value we're getting for the services we're buying. So I think it's important to remember that both SGR and these cuts are really only hitting the price part of that equation, but price affects quantity, right? So and I think we will certainly touch on this, but when you change dramatically the price of a service, you change the willingness of providers to supply that service, one
0: of the advocacy points that we bring up with Congress when we speak to them about health care financing, especially through Medicare, CMS, is that if they continue to cut compensation and reimbursement for Medicare services by physicians, that they will limit access to seniors to where we will be less able to care for seniors because of the litany of running small businesses and those things. If I'm hearing you correctly, if they cut the reimbursement to some degree, they may also limit the second part of that equation, which is utilization. Right,
1: right. Yeah. Wow. It is true. And I would even go further than that. And I think that policymakers focusing on Medicare are looking at one piece of a pie. But in reality, in your practice, Medicare isn't isolated from Medicaid, indigent care, private pay. And so when you cut prices in Medicare, you could limit access in Medicaid too, because providers may have to substitute or may look for a different mix of services or a different location that caters more to the highest paying, that is, the private sector, which will have an impact on Medicaid. We know that. Medicaid reimbursement is always below cost and historically has always been below Medicare. So when you cut Medicare rates, you could limit the supply not just to Medicare, but also to Medicaid and to the indigent populations because the practices have a fixed overhead. They have to cover the overhead and you can't make up the Medicare costs by serving other populations that reimburse below cost. What do
0: you think the ultimate fix is? If you were the president, you had both houses on your side, whatever you put into policy was going to get passed, was not going to be questioned in the Supreme Court. Oh, my goodness. You got the next four years to make this all better. How do we fix it?
1: I think I'm not sure that I could fix it. So (laughs) I'm humble enough to know (laughs) I don't have all the answers. But I think there are some good opportunities. I made some notes of things that I think are problems in the system that are fixable, but not necessarily fixable through a rate cut. So one is improving information exchange between providers. Every person on the street, they know of a time where they've had a duplication of service, they've had to reschedule something because the right information didn't get to the provider at the right time. We all can tell stories about that. That's a huge opportunity for improvement. Finding ways to make sure everybody gets the right information at the right time. Another is improving care transitions. The bundled care for a replacement initiative was about trying to find ways to improve care transitions. And in fact, It was pretty successful orthopedic surgeons were able to lead teams that generated pretty significant savings and then shared in those savings and most of that was in the care transition is finding partners that were able to manage the pre and post surgical care efficiently and effectively making sure that it was done in the right setting most cost effective setting as a country we haven't done a good job at thinking not just about what's effective, but what's cost effective. So an example I can give is this summer, the FDA approved a new Alzheimer drug that will cost $56,000 a year for an Alzheimer patient. And they showed that it has some good effects, but only for some people. And it's not really clear which people. The FDA, at least at the moment, is not charged with measuring cost effectiveness. They're only charged with approving drugs that show some effectiveness. But maybe we need to be rational in thinking about what's cost effective and how do we better target services. And that gets to another point. I actually think we have amazing opportunities in the future through assisted, you might call it AI or big data, to get better at targeting initiatives that will help us better figure out what's valuable for whom and in what setting.
0: Wow, there's so much we can jump into there. So to get back with the repeating study. So, of course, as orthopedic surgeons, we order a lot of x-rays, MRCT, ultrasound. I'm a trauma surgeon. We're sitting in our Fayetteville office in South Atlanta right now, and I practice 60 miles from here, from the north side of the city. I will see people who are injured here that need a specialist, but the x-rays don't necessarily connect because the hospital system down here is different from the hospital system up there. So, the EHRs are supposed to fix all that, And a lot of us are on the main big platform, but it doesn't necessarily connect. The question then is, if I'm running the country and I say, fine, we need all these electronic health records because it's going to help seamlessness of care, but they're not interoperable. They don't talk to each other. So is the savings from decreasing repeating studies offset by the massive cost of the electronic health records?
1: Oh, I don't know. I That's a good question. I haven't seen that study. I do know that technologically it's possible. It's possible. But again, like you said, a lot of the systems in our city, they're on the same medical record system, but it's just proprietary enough within their health system to limit sharing. How do we overcome that? We've talked about the health information network, about finding ways to move the data into a more global health information network. It's an investment question, and I don't have the answer about how much it would cost. Technologically, it's possible. The question is, are the gains from letting every system have its own proprietary health information system, are the market gains from that worth what we lose by not having information sharing? And I have to believe that there would be unbelievable savings if you had the right x-ray at the right time you needed and didn't have to repeat studies. Yeah.
0: Patients hate that. Yeah. You brought up the bundled care, total joint arthroplasty. was such a great procedure because it's so reproducible. So the two big initiatives were BBCI, the Bundle Payment for Care Improvement, and then CJR, the Comprehensive Joint Replacement Bundle, which was a mandatory bundle. And in my understanding of that, the big thing that it hit was the post-acute. So the pre-op work and the CPT codes the surgeons built and the hospital DRG pretty much stayed the same, but where they saved the system the money was in all the post-acute side. So what I'm getting at is, are these initiatives to help decrease cost in healthcare and improve value that are led by orthopedic surgeons? Number one, are these significant? Number two, should we be leading with this to tell Congress, hey, we're doing our part to try to reduce the cost in healthcare and improve value. Please help us do it rather than coming after us.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. They were successful. They did generate savings. And you don't really have to rely on a bundled payment to have the incentive to do that. You could do it through an ACO the accountable care organization would then be the vehicle for achieving the savings and sharing that savings. It's a little bit more diffuse. So the overall savings depends on the whole system working well, not just on your part of the system, but certainly even without a bundled payment, You've already identified and shown that by better integrating with post-acute care, care, handling that transition and the handoff to the post-acute care setting more effectively, you could generate pretty significant savings.
0: One thing you brought up that really resonates with us is the production of value and quality measures, to your point on the Alzheimer's drug is there's limited bang for the buck. It costs a tremendous amount of money, which may help certain number of people to a certain degree. And for that family, it's, it's significant, but for the country as a whole, we have a bunch of initiatives within the AOS specifically on developing quality measures with clinical practice guidelines and proving those things. But a big push that we're doing now is in registries. And the registries do a multitude of things by both uh, implant surveillance, making sure that the implants are performing as well as we expect them to. And then we're also trying to load in objective quality measures into there so that we could really determine best practices, find out what things really make a difference, what things we've done that don't, and trying to refine our value statement. Is this likely to be a significant impact on the healthcare economics, or is this, is this once again a rounding error?
1: No. I think it's significant. There was a study published just this year on the expenditures in Part B for low-value services. And I think it was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And I think they, they said that they spent around $7 billion on services for fee-for-service Part B Medicare that on the list as low value services in total. Now, obviously, that's not all orthopedic surgeons. That's across all specialties. But I think it points to the problem that we already have pretty good data on services that have low value, and yet we're slow to diffuse that to the practice community. And it's really difficult to police it, And I think the only people who can police it are the specialists themselves. I can tell you, because I worked in educating healthcare administrators, they don't want to be the one to say, you can't do that service (laughs) because it's got a low value. They need the provider community to say, yeah, we understand. I think the orthopedic one that's on the list is x-rays for low back pain, right? But if I'm... Running a practice, I don't want to have to go to my doctors and say, you can't order an x-ray for low back pain. There are times when that is appropriate under certain conditions. It's really up to the physicians to be the police of themselves and saying, we know what's high value, what's low value, and we're going to police ourselves.
0: COVID-19 obviously pounded the healthcare system. We took significant hits. My friends in pulmonary critical care, those folks are changed forever. The psychological and other damage that these poor people took fending off that pandemic. The economic injury to the system is hard to overstate. We sit here in the Fayetteville Office of Resurgence. We're a large private practice group here in Atlanta that did relatively okay in the pandemic because we have 103 orthopedic surgeons and physiatrists and a lot of bandwidth to try to get by this. The smaller practice of orthopedic surgery got pounded. As a result of that, we are feeling a significant increase in consolidation, not just between hospital systems like we see here in Atlanta, but also hospital systems acquiring practices, both primary care and specialty medicine. With the economic effects of the pandemic, how smart a time is that for the government to be dialing back on our compensation when they may just be driving more people into consolidated practices.
1: I think that's a really good argument. The actuaries looking at Medicare payment rates are looking metaphorically through a straw at a map, right? They're looking at one piece of a pie that's all interconnected. There's a lot of arguments that you can make as a specialty group and as proceduralists. One of the things to note is that as practices have this incentive to merge and to consolidate into bigger and bigger health systems, they gain more market power, which affects their ability to price in the private sector. And as prices in the private sector go up, the differential between Medicare and private payments grows, which only increases the incentive to change your mix of services, to focus on services that target the under 65, the healthy, the privately insured patient, and constrain access for those payers that pay below cost. And that used to be Medicaid, now it's Medicare and Medicaid that are paying below costs. It's not like I'm saying practices will implement a hard cap, but on the margin, some practices might relocate into markets that are a little bit more profitable or place new services, new practices in a market where the payer mixes a little bit better. And over time, those things affect access. The other thing is that policymakers are relying on the Medicare beneficiary survey to say we don't have an access problem with specialists. But that survey has never been administered in a year when we've had a 10% cut because we just haven't done it up to now. Every year we've rolled back the SGR. We may have ratcheted down a little bit, but we haven't had a cliff like we're facing this year. So to rely on a historical survey of Medicare beneficiaries to say we don't have an access problem when we implement a 10% cut this coming year is a little bit questionable.
0: Any thoughts of what you would expect would happen if the cuts did go through?
1: I think there's sort of short-run responses you can expect. I'm in my 60s, and I know on the margin, we think about every year, is it time for retirement? So I would expect a 10% cut to Tip some people over into retirement that might have otherwise continued to work three or four or five more years. So that's an immediate hit. I think this notion of changing your practice mix, or if you're a practice that's busy and you already limit, you can't see everybody who comes to your door, giving priority to the higher paying patients will certainly happen in some settings, or like I mentioned, relocating practices over time policymakers are actually hoping that more physicians choose primary care as a specialty, which will further reduce the supply of procedure-oriented specialists and further constrain access. I do want to mention one other thing, which is I haven't really heard anybody talk about it in this context, but as a nation, we've set as an explicit goal, eliminating disparities in care. And I am concerned that cuts in Medicare that constrain access further worsen disparities of care if they result in constrained access for Medicaid and indigent patients as well as Medicare patients. And so I think we need to really think about, are there ways that we can make sure that whatever we're doing to address prices, which are high, doesn't inadvertently constrain access for people who are already experiencing disparities.
0: That's incredibly important. And as an academy and an association, we target disparity issues and try to address these. And to your point, that would only worsen the whole issue. and or at the least access. it has
1: the potential to do so. And so maybe there's some offsetting things that can be done. Are there ways to offset Medicare cuts with Medicaid payment policy that might make sure that other populations don't bear the brunt or aren't adversely impacted by the Medicare cuts?
0: But Medicare cuts in and of themselves, if you just had those in isolation, would be an impact on diverse populations to where they would have a limited access. Right. Wow, this has been just an incredible conversation. I'd like to once again thank our guest, Dr. Patricia Ketchy, who is the Associate Professor Emeritus of the Institute of Health Administration at the Robinson School of Business at Georgia State University and the fellow of the Georgia Health Policy Center. Thank you again for this very insightful and full picture view on healthcare economics. You brought up some really great points on Issues of reducing cost, improving value, improving quality in healthcare, and trying to make sure that we continue to focus on the things that are important and our overall responsibility as physicians and spenders of the healthcare dollar of how we can better impact the care of our patients from this point forward. Thank you very much once again.
1: It was my pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the AAOS Advocacy Podcast part of the Bone Beat Orthopedic Podcast channel with production and sound design by Mission Based Media. For more information on this topic and other AAOS efforts to shape the future of musculoskeletal healthcare, please visit aaos.org forward slash thebonebeat-advocacy.